You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. 3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nation. We recognise their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning. You're tuned in to Tuesday Breakfast on 3CR Community Radio. It is Tuesday the 10th of May and it's just clocked over to 7am. Thank you to the Radioactive Show for all their current news on information on nuclear peace and energy issues. Uh, And you're joined this morning by me, Genevieve and Carnegie. Good morning. Morning. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Freezing cold, but yeah. good. <laughs> Absolutely freezing. Um, I'm currently living with a lot of people that um, were not, did not grow up in Victoria. And oh my God, the complaining. <laughs> I can't deal with it. Just like, oh, it's so cold. Da, 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 da. Just like, yes. <laughs> Absolutely. I'm, I'm here for the complaining. so here for it it helps it like warms you up yeah (laughs) um how has your week been it's been quite hectic moving house is not fun no no No. definitely not (laughs) there's so much to be done yeah and like you're so excited at the start you're like ooh, all this new space and then it's like oh i have to organize a thousand things yeah this is a good idea yeah no (laughs) <laughs> exactly um yeah I always get very restless in houses like after a year goes by I'm like oh it's time to move obviously yeah. I'm just like bored of this yeah. house yeah. Yeah. yeah it's always a terrible idea especially when you do all the most of the moving yourself yeah no we got movers this time yeah that's good I was for the first time ever never looking back yeah. Oh, yeah. I feel like once I cross that bridge, I'm not going back either. I remember uh, getting my fridge actually from Footscray to my new house um, and stupidly tying it down on this U and stupidly going over the Westgate Bridge, which is... The That's sca- terrifying. I know. It's so stupid. <laughs> Never again, John. Yeah, those crosswinds, they'll, they'll get you. Um, okay. <laughs> Uh, coming up on today's show, as always, we have a very, very big show. Um, unfortunately, Evie and Fung are not with us this morning, um, but uh, Evie had a conversation with Dr. Susie Allenson and Lizzie O'Shea uh all about, um, I guess, in light of the current crisis, uh, protecting abortion rights in the US. Uh you know, she had a bit of a conversation about how it's important to uh, look at the battles we have here uh, in Australia, especially when it comes to uh, gender uh, disparities uh, with decriminalization in some states only happening as recently as 2021 in regards to abortion. Um, and so Evie had a conversation about uh, their new book, Empowering Women, uh, which is now in all good bookstores. 
and then you have a conversation coming up after that. Um, yeah, so I'll be speaking with Dr. Tanya Penovic, who is a senior lecturer in the Faculty of Law uh, at the Castan Centre for Human Rights Law. And we'll be talking about the implications of overturning Roe versus Wade for women in the US and also globally. Yeah. Um, and then coming up after that... I will be speaking to Nasser Mashni, who is actually a co-presenter of 3CR program Palestine Remembered about Nakba, which is coming up this week for Palestinian people. And uh, we're also going to discuss the details on that event happening May 15th, commemorating Nakba. Uh, and then after that, we're going to be hearing from Dr. Erica Miller. We definitely have a theme of... Um, Obviously, the Roe v. Wade uh, debate happening in the U.S. has brought about a lot of discussion in the media. And I will also be talking to Erica about that more from a domestic context. Um, And I guess especially even the whole debate on abortions and how that impacts women's views on them. Um, And then just coming up last, we'll be playing that second half of Evie's conversation with Dr. Susie Allenson and Lizzie O'Shea about their book, Empowering Women. Huge. Amazing. (laughs) All right. We will be back right after this, after this quick announcement. Do you know what to do if you can't make it to a voting place on election day? You may be eligible to vote at an early voting centre or apply for a postal vote. The federal election is on Saturday the 21st of May. COVID-19 safety measures will be in place. All Australians 18 and over must vote. To find out more and check if you're eligible, ring 132326 or go to aec.gov.au. It's our vote and our future. Starting on the 25th of May. Come, join me, Dr Gonzo, on Wednesday night at 11 when I'll be introducing an artist or a band who'll be introducing and talking about the songs on their album on And This One's Introduced By on 3CR. You're back on Tuesday Breakfast, 3CR Community Radio. We're going to jump into some news headlines. Do you want to start us off, Carnegie? Yeah, so... uh The Philippines is currently um, going through their election process. Um, Well, it's coming up. And Vice President Lenny Robredo uh, is hoping that she will be able to win this election um, and take over from the dynasty that's been ruling the Philippines for the last, I don't know how many years. Um, She is running a grassroots campaign Um, which is hoping will be how she gets a leg up. Um, Heaps of young people are taking to the streets to join in what is being called the Pink Movement um, to help elect Vice President Lenny Robredo as president. Um, It's being viewed as one of the most consequential election processes in the country's history. Um, 57-year-old Robredo is a human rights lawyer, social activist and mother of three daughters, Um, She went into politics after her husband, who was then a government minister, was killed in a plane crash, um, and she won a congressional seat in 2013, overwhelmingly defeating a member of the political dynasty in her hometown. Um, And since then, she's continued to um, 
peddle very progressive politics and vocally wants to change the landscape of the Philippines um, politics. Her supporters have organized massive rallies across the country and are campaigning house to house, organizing food programs and health clinics, as well as legal counseling. Um, but despite support from, you know, A-list celebrities, Catholic priests, schools, unis, farmers, um, kind of across the board, she has a lot of support. Um, Marcos, who is the current um, family that's running the Philippines, is still polling higher than her. However, Robredo is hoping to change that with her People to People campaign. So we will keep you updated on what's going on in the Philippines here on Tuesday Breakfast. Yeah, that'll be a really interesting election. Um, And speaking of elections as well, this is recent uh, breaking news that happened overnight. Uh, Sri Lanka's prime minister has actually resigned after weeks of major protest uh, over an economic crisis that has cut off basic services. Um, This was confirmed by a government official Uh, that the resignation of the president, um, sorry, excuse me, the president is Mr. Rajpaska's brother, Gotbaya Rajpaksa, who is refusing to stand down despite calls from demonstrators. Protests escalated over the past week with the government imposing a state of emergency and curfew, giving sweeping powers to security forces. On Monday, pro-government groups attacked protesters, leading to 78 people being admitted to hospital with injuries. And earlier on Monday, the outgoing prime minister called for peace during the protests. Uh, He said, while emotions are running high in Sri Lanka, I urge our general public to exercise restraint and remember that violence only begets violence. Uh, Sri Lankans have faced months of power outages and acute food food, fuel and medicine shortages as the country cannot import supplies because of its huge foreign debt. Uh, Ms. Rajapaksa has held two prime minister prime ministerial terms, the most recent since 2019. And he was also president of Sri Lanka from 2005 to 2015 when he ended the country's 26-year civil war between the Sinhalese government and the separatist group. Uh, both sides have been accused of war crimes and Mr. Rajpaksa faced criticism for now how he won the conflict with 40,000 Tamil civilians alleged to have been killed by government forces in the final weeks of fighting. Uh, this is obviously breaking in recent news. Um, and so we'll keep you updated. I'm sure 3CR programs will keep you updated on the fallout of this resignation. Um, but it's pretty, pretty huge. Um, all right. I might just quickly, uh, mention, I did think this was an interesting news story, uh, but we do have to get on to the next rest of the show. Um, in Bali, there has been, I mean, this shouldn't be surprising, uh, considering how many, uh, Western people relocate to Bali, uh, but foreigners in Bali find themselves, uh, under criticism with, a lot of the Hindus that live there over offensive social media posts. A Russian yogi influencer and her husband will be deported and barred from entering Indonesia for six months after they offended Balinese Hindus by posting images of... uh, She posted an image of herself posing naked on a centuries-old sacred tree. Um, It's known as the Kayu Putu, which translates as white wood, the giant tree behind Babakan temple in Bali's 
Tabernan district is believed by locals to be 700 years old. The image went viral after a prominent Balinese fashion designer and politician posted a screenshot asking people to report Alina to immigration authorities and police. Um, She later posted, trashy tourists go home, exclamation mark. Um, I mean, yeah, this is just... It's unbelievable. It's not, Bali's not like people's kind of backyard to like play in. Mm -hmm. It's... Yeah, and, like, try on aesthetics, like, spiritual um, aesthetics that they can use to amplify their Instagram page. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, it's kind of nice to see, well, Indonesia has deported them over it. Um, So they're taking a stance. Um, But, yeah, that's it for news headlines. There's a lot going on. There's a lot going on. Um, We could talk about it for the whole day, but we won't. We won't. Um, (laughs) We might play a track next uh this one is by new zealand sibling duo they're called broods um and they his like i love their music so much i feel like they're so poppy and happy and um this song is from their 2022 album space island and it is called peace of my mind
That was、uh, Peace of My Mind by Broods. Trans Family is a not for profit organization providing a peer support group for loved ones, including parents, siblings, extended family, and friends of a trans and gender diverse person. Trans Family runs discussion groups in person and online. We offer a safe space to share your experiences, ask any questions regarding your situation, and provide peer support. We are especially keen to hear from loved ones in regional and rural Victoria. Donations to Trans Family are tax deductible. For more information, visit transfamily.org.au or look for us on Facebook. Trans Family is a 3CR supporter. In light of the current crisis in protecting abortion rights in the United States, it's vital to remember how recent the battles have been closer to home, with decriminalisation in some states only happening as recently as 2021 in Australia. Evie spoke with Dr. Susie Allenson and Lizzie O'Shea about their book, Empowering Women, which is now in all good bookstores and is going to have a much belated but awaited launch on Monday, the 23rd of May. We're going to hear some of that interview now. Joining us today on 3CR Tuesday Breakfast are two of the key players and also the co authors of a new book that is the oral history of safe abortion access in Victoria.、Um, on the 16th of July in 2001, a security guard was shot dead inside Melbourne's fertility control. Clinic. After years of harassment of women,、um, their family members and staff outside reproductive health facilities、uh, provided safe abortion access. And this violent, catalyst, sorry, this violent act was the catalyst that set in train a nearly 20 year fight that led to the decriminalisation of abortion and introduction of safe access zones in Victoria. Joining us now will be Dr. Susie Allenson and Lizzie O'Shea. It is an enormous privilege to have you both on the show this morning. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having、Thanks、us on, Amy.、Um, Dr. Susie, first of all, congratulations on being recognised this year with the Order of Australia Medal. I'm guessing this is a very different trajectory to how you imagined your life would turn out, going by the way you opened your story in the book. <laughs> So, I mean, I think taking on the role at the fertility control clinic as the clinical psychologist there、uh, was more like serendipity. It wasn't like I was applying for the job,、um, you know, anxious to get that role.、Uh, a friend、uh, was leaving and asked me if I'd step in. And、um, once I'd Had a good chat about the role, then I was keen to get that role. It's been, it's been a fabulously、um, interesting and, and、uh, just such a rewarding area to work in. That's right. And, th- and this、uh, fight that you have you know, serendipitously been jo-、uh, drawn into has now gone over 25 years. What an incredible career.、Um, and just The, the ability to understand、uh, what women go through when they come to reproductive health clinics. Of course, it's not just about 
uh, safe abortion access, but access to all sorts of facilities that women do need um, in often the most painful and traumatic times of their life. Oh, yes. Look, I couldn't get over the fact that here were women who, for nine out of ten of them, were clear about a decision to terminate a pregnancy um, or who were coming in for contraception or a pap test or a whole range of of, um, women's health issues. But in order to actually get into the clinic, they were having to go through a gauntlet of extreme religious right people out the front harassing, blocking, showing ghastly images um, and trying to shame and intimidate women from coming in. And, of course, staff staff copped a bit too. Yeah, um, one quote that I... um that really struck me that um, I read that you said was that you said you believe it's a, it's, it's its own form of violence against women. Uh, you said that we like to think we're a modern society, but these attitudes to women can be unkind and disrespectful and very ingrained. And as someone who is a millennial, I think it is a good reminder that, um, you know, these attitudes still continue and it is a battle that, you know, that we have to fight daily. Look, unfortunately, that's so. Excuse me. Um, I I guess I've been shocked after being a feminist back in the 70s at at uni um, to see how far we've come in some ways and how little we've come in others. And it's definitely a form of violence against women. Um, I couldn't really believe how tough it was to have our society, the powers that be, to just do the decent thing. And I don't understand, and I've had conversations with my lawyer, doctor, and Lizzie about this and many others, why men are not fighting for women. They all come from a mother. They they all have women who are sisters, friends. You know, they're women in their lives, but they don't seem to speak up for women. Yes, there are some men who are doing that, but not enough. And so I was, I just couldn't get over. Why is it so hard to point out that women are being completely disrespected here. Um, Their health and mental health uh, is being harmed and yet we're not doing anything. (laughs) Yeah, it's it's all about the shared struggle. Um, And, I mean, that's in so many aspects of life, but especially when it comes to reproductive health, it is still a shared struggle. Um, Lizzie, the most interesting thing about um, the um, various court battles and legislative battles in the book that I found was that the case that you were on with the fertility control clinic, that case was actually lost in the first instance, but you didn't take that as a means of defeat. In fact, it proved that, you know, the clinic had done everything they possibly could to solve that problem themselves. Exactly. I think it's really important to remember this, that um, litigation can be a really powerful tool for social change, but it's done... It performs that job only really when it's done in partnership with people who are advocating for these issues on the front line outside the courtroom. And so Susie's a perfect example of that, someone who struggled and organised various women, showed up, did the right thing, agitated wherever she could. Eventually, she found lawyers who were prepared to represent her on the terms that she wanted to be represented, which I think is so critically important. And I was a member of that team with others. 
and and we took the court to the, the we took the case to the Supreme Court. But of course, you're right; we were unsuccessful, and it's obviously devastating. Like you don't want to bring a court case and lose. Uh, I just want to make that 100 percent clear. But I do think it was a really important step in the process because what it demonstrated was that the Fertility Control Clinic had sought to do everything it possibly could about this nuisance. It had taken um, the Melbourne City Council to court and said, "You need to fix this problem. This problem of harassment at the front of the clinic. It's within the the your power to do so." and you elected not to. And the court endorsed that that conduct of the Melbourne City Council. And that meant, really, we'd reached a dead end. And the only alternative was legislative reform to introduce safe access zones. So it set that up. And then we found allies in Parliament, Fiona Patton being one, Jill Hennessy being another, and eventually a cross-party coalition that was prepared to take that legislative step. So court cases can be really powerful, even sometimes when you lose. But that's really only if you've got if you're doing it in strategic partnership with those who are affected. And the laws didn't really go uncontested for that long either. Um, in 2016, two anti-abortion activists were convicted. Um, under legislation both here in Victoria and under similar laws in Tasmania. And so this is what led to the High Court decision in 2019, I believe. That's right. So eventually when we'd introduced these laws um, through an act of parliament, they were challenged by these harassers, these anti-choice fanatics, and that made its way all the way to the High Court. And there's obviously... um, one of the things people might know about the Constitution is that there's an implied right of freedom of political communication. We don't actually have many rights in our Constitution or in our law generally that are enforceable, but that's one. And so the court was asked to negotiate what the the distinction is between those two. Can you limit what people can do uh, outside an abortion clinic to protect staff and patients? Is that an incursion of freedom of political communication? And the court endorsed our view that harassment of staff and patients was unacceptable, that it doesn't mean it's a limit on your capacity to speak freely and to have a a liberal democracy, um, and that those two things are compatible. And I think it was a really good endorsement of our strategy, putting women's rights at the centre of this discussion and the harm they suffer when they're harassed by people accessing a lawful health service that's unacceptable and people shouldn't be able to do that. And it's not really freedom of political communication to claim that you're somehow protesting lawfully in doing so. But actually it's about women's rights to access health care without discrimination, without harassment, and the court endorsed that view. And that was Dr Susie Allenson and Lizzie O'Shea talking about their book Empowering Women. And we'll hear some more from that conversation later on the show. Bisexual Alliance Victoria is a not-for-profit organisation dedicated to equality and justice for multi-gender-attracted people, including bi, pan, regardless of label or no label at all, their partners and allies. Bisexual Alliance runs discussion groups in person and online. The group offers a safe and fun space to share your experiences, ask any questions regarding your sexual identity and provide peer support. Bisexual Alliance is especially keen to hear from multi-gender attracted people in regional and rural Victoria. Donations of $2 or more to Bisexual Alliance are now tax deductible. For more information, visit our website at bi-alliance.org, email info at bi-alliance.org or find us on Facebook or Twitter. A 3CR supporter. I'm bisexual.
Welcome back to 3CR Tuesday Breakfast. Next up, we're going to play a song by a Congolese-born South African-based singer. Um, his name is Tressor, and this is his 2020 single, Walk Through Fire. As I surrender all my heart to you, I won't desert you. I'll catch you when you fall. When you lose, I'll get you home. What the fire, the fire, the fire, the fire for us? What only does is what they of us. What the fire, the fire, the fire, the fire for us? What only does is what they of us. That was Walk Through Fire by Tressel. Dr. Tanya Penovic is a senior lecturer in the Faculty of Law, Deputy Associate Dean International, and the Research Program Group Leader in Gender and Sexuality for the Castan Center for Human Rights Law. Dr. Penovic teaches litigation and dispute resolution, taught in a number of areas of international and domestic human rights law, including women's rights. 
Tanya is on this show this morning to talk to us about the implications of overturning Roe versus Wade in the US and here in Australia. Welcome to the show, Tanya. It's great to be here, Carnegie. So can we start off by just giving our listeners a little bit of a background on what Roe versus Wade is? Sure. It's a decision that the Supreme Court of the United States handed down in 1973 and it basically found that the right to decide whether or not to have an abortion was constitutionally protected under the right to privacy. So so what this meant was that states could not impose outright bans on abortion because that would be unconstitutional. Some restrictions were permissible and it basically took a trimester framework. So in the first trimester of a pregnancy, um, abortion should not be restricted. In the second trimester, um, restrictions could be tailored largely around um, the health and safety of the mother. And in the third trimester, um, more restrictions could be imposed, particularly around that point of viability, so when the fetus is capable of life outside the womb, which was around 24 weeks. Yeah. So, so the, overturn- the, the likely overturning, and, and it hasn't happened yet, mm. we, you know, we just have a leaked draft uh, majority opinion, um, which looks like it's unlikely to change. And in fact, the leaking renders that, you know, more so, I believe. So it's, it's just a draft opinion at this stage. Now, now it, when this, when and if this becomes the majority decision, then states will be free to ban abortion and more than half of the states of the United States are poised to do so. Yeah, it's a terrifying prospect. Um, what is. Does religion play a role in this? Absolutely, absolutely. This, this, is, this is inextricably tied with the rise, uh, the, the, the political rise of the evangelicals. So, so the Catholic Church has always been opposed to abortion, but it was really the 1970s, 1980s that the evangelical um, movement, which which comprises a large percentage, it's I, I believe around a quarter of the U.S. population. Um, this was a group that was not very politically active up until the late 1970s. They they seemed to sort of shun politics as a bit of a dirty business, but that all changed, and really, abortion was the galvanising issue. So um, the, the growing politicisation of the evangelical movement is such that really since Reagan, every Republican presidential candidate, including Trump, really declared their opposition to abortion. And then this was, this was the price to be paid for support from the evangelicals. So, you know, even even if you know they don't really mean it. And I actually think that none of them have really meant it. You know, from Reagan to to the two Bushes to to Trump, none of them have meant it. But it's been it's been um a condition of a lot of political support. Now Trump um got to install three judges on the Supreme Court 
And uh, these judges have um, been the decisive, well, are likely to be the decisive factor. I mean, you know, obviously um, we don't know um, for sure who would be concurring with Alito, who wrote the majority judgment. But, you know, we have a fair idea. <laughs> it includes the three that, that Trump got to a point. So it's all inextricably tied with the rise of the Christian right. And and this is something that I think we we are very um, complacent about here. But there's, there's definitely been a rise of the Christian right in Australia too. And, and I think that this is something that we should be very very aware of. Um, it, is, it is very dangerous for the rights of women um, and the rights of other vulnerable groups, so LGBTIQ plus people, um, people with a disability. It's of great concern. I think it really needs to be interrogated uh, constantly. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, the kind of um, far-right religious movement isn't as big here and it's not used quite as much in political kind of to kind of polarize um different sides of politics as much here in Australia um but I think you're absolutely right you can't be complacent because there have been instances of examples where people are emulating that kind of thing here um you know can you talk to us a bit more about how there's been examples of, you know, us emulating American kind of activism in these far-right spaces. Sure, sure. And, and you know, it's interesting to note the growing link between um, the, the Christian right, the, the anti-abortion movement, and, you know, also the, the far-right in the United States, so other elements of the far right, which is fairly frightening and, and something that's just emerging. But in Australia, something I've done a lot of research on is um, anti-abortion picketing of um, abortion clinics. Now, throughout Australia now, we have laws that that keep these picketers at a distance from clinics. We know that, that there's a history of decades of targeted harassment of people entering and leaving clinics. And um, about 15 years ago, we had a, a murder at, um, at East Melbourne's fertility control clinic um, that was perpetrated by a man who had stood outside the clinic previously with anti-abortion groups. I mean, they all, they all um, distanced themselves from him <laughs> um, after what happened, but he had stood and, and you know, sort of protested, if you like, with them. Now, these these um, picketers, and I won't call them protesters, they would stand outside clinics, they would, they would abuse people, shout at them, stop them from entering the building, stop them from exiting cars, chase them down, down the road, um, hurl abuse at them, and... These, this conduct was very much modelled on conduct that occurred in the US. So a lot of these picketers belong to a group um, known as Helpers of God's Precious Infants, which was set up in Brooklyn um, by a Catholic priest. And this Catholic priest visited Australia. He, he exported his methodologies <laughs> to Australia and... The, the rise of the Christian right has seen um, not just the influence online, um, which obviously is easy now, but visits from these people to um, share their ideas and methodologies with 
um, activists in Australia. So that that's one thing. But even in the um, even in the the legislative and policy space, um, South Australia is the last uh, Australian state to decriminalise abortion. It, it's legislation has still not come into effect. It hasn't commenced, but. In the context of the, the passage of that legislation, um, some parliamentarians invited an American anti-abortion activist to advise them uh, in Parliament, mm. in South Australian Parliament. We know too that that at the um, the recent uh, Queensland election, the um, LNP promised that if it won power, it would review the decriminalisation of abortion. By the Labor by the Labor government, and in fact, One Nation, which of course originates in Queensland, um, has a greater power base in Queensland, ran on a um, an anti-choice platform. So it's a very much an American influenced American style. We will ban abortion. You know, we mm-hmm. we have a pro-life in inverted commas. Uh, platform. So you can see examples of this politicisation and of course we have, um, we have a government that tried to enact a religious freedoms law and is committed if it wins the election later this month to um, once again have a go at it. Now, now that is a very, very concerning law. That, that's a law that, that really... Um, is pandering to the religious right, in my view. Um, you know, it, the impetus for that was um, same-sex marriage, which was seen as so outrageous for the Christian right that, that they needed <laughs> they needed a consolation prize, and that was to be this religious freedoms law that is a, a hateful and nasty law that no one needs, and will just entrench discrimination and nastiness against vulnerable people. And, you know, particularly people with disability, LGBTIQ plus people and women seeking health care services. So it's, um, it's, it's, it's a real worry. And of course, we have, we have our first evangelical prime minister, mm. um, in Scott Morrison. And, you know, that, that influence is not to be sneezed at. It, it's all extremely concerning and, I am committed to continuing to interrogate it um, in order to, to not drop the ball and, and um, sort of complacently think that we are not like the US. I mean, the US, like it or not, is extremely influential over, you know, Australians and the rest of the world, in fact. So we need to watch very carefully what's happening there. Yeah, absolutely. And there are... Pretty terrifying example of how you can push sort of a stigmatized narrative over a sustained long period of time, and that slowly kind of leads to the erosion of rights. And you're not always a hundred percent aware as it's happening. Well, that's right. I mean, it's been forty nine years in the making this judgment, and it's it's taken a concerted effort for five decades um, of these Christian rights anti-abortion groups, and I might say a lot of money. There's a lot of money um, that, you know, sort of available to these groups and a lot of money has been poured into lobbying in the United States, but also these groups have, you know, lobbied elsewhere around the world 
um, most actively in Europe. Um, and you know, you may you may say, well, I think Europe, you know, Europe ha- generally has liberalised laws, and abortion laws are fairly liberal in most of Europe. But there are exceptions, and notably Poland. Um, Poland has regressed, and U.S. U.S. Christian right has been very active in Poland in facilitating that development. Wow. Um, yeah, I think that's also um, something that we should all be constantly aware of, not just the America's influence here, but globally. Um, what can people do to kind of just keep abreast of this and make sure that they are um, catching, you know, what's going on? And yeah, it's, it doesn't take us by surprise one day. Well, I think, I think um, you need to inform yourselves. I think you need to communicate with your political representatives. I think you need to um, let them know what your views are. And you need to, to vote at the election and all elections for candidates that reflect um, your values. And, you know, sometimes assumptions are made um, and those assumptions are wrong. So knowledge is power, and I would say inform yourself. And, and don't be complacent, never be complacent, because these rights are hard-fought and easily lost. But, but you know, the, the, the one thing I would say, too, is think about Australia. When we think about Australia and religion, we think about ourselves as a secular nation, mm. um, and increasingly so. And, you know, we know that most Australians are in favour of reproductive rights because polling has shown us the case. But um, the United States of America is another example of where the majority of the population um, support reproductive rights. So it's about 70% of the US population that believes that Roe should not be overturned. And yet you can have a political landscape where um, the the consequence is quite different um, because of your elected representatives because of the politicisation of the judiciary. And I think it's something that that we need to be aware of. I mean, this is a a fundamental human rights issue. It's about the right to health. It's about the right to equality, gender equality. It's about freedom from cruel, inhuman and degrading treatment. There was an article yesterday by Margaret Atwood, um, author of The Handmaid's Tale, among other things, where she described... Um, forced childbirth as a form of slavery very compellingly. So I think I think we need to inform ourselves so that, that we know what the situation is. And of course, that's not easy within our <laughs> media landscape, but, but I think people do, do very well to be listening to your program. Absolutely. Um, that's unfortunately all we have time for today, but I would like to definitely... Uh, encourage our listeners to stay cautious and um, you know stay informed and vote Um, thank you so much for joining us today Tanya and talking us through this really important issue it's a pleasure Carnegie Um, all the best it's been lovely talking to you you too that was Dr Tanya Penovic from the Human Rights um, Caston Law Centre talking to us about the implications of overturning Roe versus Wade Accent to women. It seems so obvious to me that if you live in a, in a completely violent um, cultural milieu, that it's going to translate into every aspect of women's lives. 
accent women. What's a border? They don't see it like a big wall right along the How the can country? people live ordinary lives when they're living in such an extraordinary situation where there are two where there are armies there and terrorists there and such conflict every single day of their lives? Accent women. A show by and about women from culturally and linguistically diverse backgrounds. On Community Radio 3CR. Boobap Jazz. The Milky Way looks good in the night sky. The stars open a shirt for my dark eyes. Hey, I'm Lady Lash. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, the voice of the set. 3CR is so awesome, giving the platform for people's voices to be heard and people's gifts to be heard. And always remember that you are amazing. I'm dreaming of the seven moons. Oh, I see what's new. Hey you mob, it's the simple everyday things we can all do that will help protect our families and community from coronavirus. Like wearing a mask when required, catching up outside if we can, keeping indoor spaces well ventilated with windows and doors open as much as possible and getting tested if we feel unwell. Let's keep being COVID safe every day. To find out more, go to coronavirus.vic.gov.au. Authorised by the Victorian Government, Melbourne. A 3CR supporter. You're on Tuesday breakfast. It is 7.49am. Joining us on the show now is co-presenter of Palestine Remembered, a show that airs on 3CR every Saturday at 9.30am, Nasser Mashni. Nasser is the son of a Palestinian refugee is the Vice President of the Australian-Palestine Advocacy Network, co-founder of Australians for Palestine and a founding board member of Olive Kids. With his father's legacy in mind, Nasser is determined to continue the struggle for justice and a free Palestine. He joins us now to discuss Al-Nakba, which is happening this May 15th, a day commemorating the destruction of the Palestinian homeland in 1948 and the ongoing displacement of a majority of its people. We will also discuss details on the upcoming community events running in Nam and around Australia to commemorate the day. Thank you so much for joining us on Tuesday Breakfast, NASA. Good morning. How are you? Good. How are you going this morning? Yeah, very well, thank you. Very well. Thank you for the opportunity to speak to your audience today. No, thanks for getting up early. Um, I know it can be a bit of a struggle. Well, I've got uh, three kids, so this is not early. Oh, but. okay, that's fine. <laughs> um, so, May 15 is Nakba, which is a day commemorating the destruction of the Palestinian homeland and obviously the ongoing displacement and oppression um, of its people. Could you give our listeners some historical context into the Nakba and what it means to Palestinian people. Yeah, so Nakban literally translates to catastrophe or disaster, perhaps even a cataclysm, if you will. Um, today, uh, May 15, is uh, for, for Palestinians the day that we commemorate because it's when we lost Palestine. Um, our, your, your listeners will know that the modern state of Israel uh, is uh, a very recent phenomenon. In fact, in 1948, the day before May 15, May 14, 1948, the British ruled Palestine under a mandate. Uh, And that mandate was granted to them by other colonial powers after World War I to uh, administer those lands until they were ready for some form of democracy. Now, the British uh, conspired with 
the Zionist, a, a political ideology that came out of uh, Western Europe that sought to create a Jewish homeland. Um, motives that, you know, are, are, are pure. We don't deny Jewish connection to the, the lands of Palestine. What we do not accept and what actually ended up happening was the last modern settler colonial state was created. The State of Israel was declared on May 15, 1948, in conspiracy with Western imperial powers. You can't just create a state without on, on, on land that had people in it. And then we know that's a, uh, a reality for here in so-called Australia. We know that's the reality in Aotearoa, in New Zealand, in uh, North America, in Canada, the United States, in South America, Turtle Islands, where Indigenous people were ethnically cleansed, massacred and killed to create modern nation-states. And in 1948, that's what happened in Palestine. A coordinated military Zionist campaign was created to ethnically cleanse Palestinians from their ancestral homes. During the war, uh, the Arab-Israeli war, as it was called, as we know it, the Nakba, the, the, the loss of Palestine, 750,000 Palestinians were ethnically cleansed, driven at the end of Bayonet, following massacres in places like Deryasin and Haifa and Lid. And we should give people an idea of exactly what we're talking about with respect to how coordinated and meticulously planned this was. For almost a decade previously, uh, Israeli terrorist groups had meticulously noted down villages. They planned which villages had to, the, whose residents had to flee north, whose residents had to flee east, and whose residents would have to flee south and west. And those villages were surrounded. Theoretically, a village that had to go north was surrounded from the south and the east and the west. And they went in there and started killing people and said, like, you've got an hour. Uh, anybody that's still here in an hour is going to be killed. On April 8, 1948, so a couple of months before Nakba, uh, a month before Nakba, the village of Deryasin, which was in uh, West Jerusalem, uh, Zionist terrorist gang, uh, Irgun and Haganah, went into that village and killed almost everything. Pregnant women, children, animals, elderly, etc. They left enough people alive to send some north, some east and some south and said, tell them we're on our way. Now, that terror, the terror of, the, of um, uh, what had happened in Deir Yassin, drove three-quarters of a million Palestinians, almost 90% of the indigenous population of Palestine, to flee their homes. Here we are, 74 years later now. Those refugees number some five million. All of them denied the right to go home. And in a... In a uh, in, in, you know, a marvel of Western hypocrisy. We're jumping up and down for Ukrainians who are in two or three months of occupation, and we stand resolutely with the Ukrainian people against Russian imperialism uh, and Russian displays of power. But the world is jumping up and down, raising money for uh, Ukrainians, arming Ukrainians. The BBC even had a how-to video on Molotov cocktails. Mm -hmm. Palestinians endeavouring to to... to take up their inalienable right to return to Palestine are denied that right. They're called terrorists, we're maligned, we're marginalised for just seeking justice, which is the right to return to our homes. I mean, we've got relatives. I've got an uncle who's older than, than, than the State of Israel, but he's denied his right to return purely 
because he's not Jewish. Mm-hmm. It's an apartheid state, and really, we need well-meaning people all over the world to come with Palestinians on May 15 and to stand with them and hopefully join us in Nam. Uh, at the State Library at 12 o'clock. Of course, yeah. And you see, I guess you brought up such a good point. You see it so potently, um, this kind of bias towards certain uh, people's... Or uh, I was speaking last week about um, Afghanistan and, um, you know, anyone that's not white, non-European, are not given as much urgency in Western media. And, you know, you can obviously see that in the difference in reporting from Palestine and Ukraine... Um, you know, and that's, I guess, why it's so important to amplify the Nakba. Um, you did mention briefly, but maybe we can um, hone it through to our listeners. There is a community event uh, happening this 15th of May on Sunday to commemorate uh, the Nakba. Would you be able to just uh, repeat again to our listeners the details on what is happening and how they can take part? Yeah, so this Sunday, the, the 15th of May at the State Library Victoria, they're on Swanson uh, Walk, up near Latrobe Street in front of the State Library from 12 o'clock till 2 o'clock. We're having a vigil. Um, we've got some uh, some speakers that'll be talking. Uh, it could be a, a sombre event, but also a celebration of the steadfastness of the Palestinian people as they uh, continue to fight for their rights. I mean, there was a, um, a very famous uh, Zionist line was that Israel was a land without people for a people without land. Well, I'm a person from that land. My children are. We are people of that land, and we haven't forgotten that land. David Ben-Gurion was the first Prime Minister of the State of Israel, and he said, the old die and the young will forget. So we're, we're the young, and we haven't forgotten. As an Indigenous people, our connection to our land is unbreakable, as is the Indigenous connection here in so-called Australia to its people. The Indigenous people here will continue to struggle for their right to self-determination, to treaty, etc., as will the Palestinians all over the world. Definitely. Um, and I hope to see many, many people down there on Sunday. Uh, well, thank you so much, NASA, for joining us on Tuesday Breakfast, talking us through Nakba and some of the details that are happening this Sunday. Fantastic. Thanks so much, Genevieve, and thank you for having me on the show. No worries at all. Um, That was Nasser Mashni, who is a co-presenter of Palestine Remembered on 3CR and vice president of the Australia Palestine Advocacy Network. Just to repeat uh, there, if you want to be a part of the event uh, this Sunday, 15th of May, to commemorate Nakba, please meet at the State Library at 12 p.m. here in Nam. There is also events happening nationally, which are APAN. APAN is, um, has all the details about that on their Instagram page. Uh, and also be sure, of course, to tune into Palestine Remembered on 3CR every Saturday at 9.30 a.m. All right, I think we might go into a track now. Yeah, this one is by one of my all-time favourite pop punk bands, um, Slita Kinney, and it's called Modern Girl. Yeah. 
That was Modern Girl by Slita Kinney. All right, we're going to go into another interview now. And we are very lucky to be joined by Dr. Erica Miller, who is a senior research fellow in crime justice and legal studies at La Trobe. Erica's current research focuses on the cultural and social contexts of abortion provision. And she has also written a book in 2017 titled Happy Abortions, Our Bodies in the Era of Choice, which examines how anti-abortion messages are infused into common ways of talking about abortion. Erica is on the show to extend our conversation from this morning about the alarming position of the U.S. Supreme Court to potentially overturn Roe versus Wade and give some domestic context to the discussion because, as we know, Australia's abortion policies are not as legally easy as you might think. Thank you so much for joining us, Erica. It's a pleasure, Genevieve. Thanks so much for having me on. No, of course. Um, all right, so I wanted to you know, just mentioned to our audience, your recent research has been focused on abortion provision and, you know, obviously very topical in the news right now, considering the Roe v. Wade proposed overturn in the US, which um, our earlier guests spoke about uh, quite extensively. And it would be great if you could quickly discuss what kind of discussions you are seeing pop up right now in the way of this. And considering you have spent so much time researching um, abortion. Has anything surprised you about the discussion happening now? All oh, right. Unfortunately, <laughs> nothing surprised me. Yeah. Uh, people who um, know a little bit about abortion had been expecting uh, Roe versus Wade to be overturned this year, so mm-hmm. it doesn't come with any surprise, unfortunately. Of course, the leaked decision is a surprise because that's almost unprecedented, so we hadn't expected to hear so early in the year. Um, but it's shocking nevertheless. You kind of expect it, but then when you get the decision, it's like, oh, my God. Yeah. Um, nothing, nothing really surprised me. Um, I think, you know, I haven't actually... I've just had a crazy couple of weeks, so I haven't actually even read the leaked um decision yet um but i think the language of that was particularly conservative um but people who um who i speak to who know a lot about the u.s context um they say that you know it's very predictable language that this is the language of the anti-abortion movement have been using in the u.s for 30 years um i guess from um from my kind of research perspective something that interests me, but it's not surprising, is um, on Twitter there's been a lot of people talking about their abortions, um, as we often see um, 
you know, in response to these major events. Um, and you mentioned my book, Genevieve, um, and when I was researching for my book, which is really almost in the early 2000s now because it was my PhD, um, there was this really pervasive narrative of abortion of being, you know, very emotionally challenging and difficult. And it was like it, the, the sort of narrative went that it's the most difficult thing you're ever going to have to do and you're going to be emotionally scarred forever. Mm. Um, and... Well, we still see that narrative and, you know, politicians love it. <laughs> they love to say yeah. how difficult abortion is. Um, you see people on Twitter now and they talk about their abortions really speaking against this narrative and saying how, you know, um, how great a decision it was for them and how they felt relief um, and how, you know, abortion was the best thing that ever happened to them. And, you know, I'm, I'm simplifying both these narratives here. Yeah. And, of course, you know, and I'm also simplifying the experience of abortion because everyone who has had an abortion has a different experience and some people experience it as difficult and some people experience that it's easy. Um, but I think that, you know, dominant narrative abortion has shifted over the last 10 years towards this, you know, difficult to this more unapologetic um, stance. So I guess that's interesting to me, um, given my work. But, you know, all the conservative discourse around abortion, it doesn't surprise me. It's disappointing. Yeah. Um, yeah. But on that, just one thing I'll say is that Australia is a very different context to the US. It ha always has been in regards to abortion. Um, I think we um, sometimes think of Australia as the 51st American state, but actually yeah. <laughs> um, when it comes to abortion, we've always been very different, as has places like um, the, the United Kingdom, Canada, New Zealand. Um, America is the exception and all other countries and sort of the Anglophone West are moving in the other direction and that's towards the criminalisation and liberalisation of abortion. So that's good to bear in mind when thinking about the US context. Definitely. And I definitely yeah. want to get into um, a little bit about what you touched on in your book um, in, I guess, the modern, I guess, to do with what's now a little bit later in the conversation, but just going yeah. off... Um, you know, Australia and abortions yeah. here and, you know, Australia has also had a turbulent view on abortions, obviously not to the <clears throat> same extreme as the US, uh, yeah. but not that many people are aware of our policies on the matter. And um, yeah. as you mentioned in an article in the conversation recently, even though it is no longer a crime in all states to get an abortion, there are many legal hurdles for women uh, that women still need to jump over. Um, yeah. Would you explain what kind of legalities still remain obstacles for women in Australia to access abortions? Yeah, well, when we think of obstacles um, to abortion especially, we often think about legal obstacles. Um, so I'll go through them um, quickly, some of yeah. the major ones anyway. Um, and so one of the major ones actually is in um, South Australia and the South, South Australian Parliament decriminalised abortion more than a year ago. Um, I passed um, the both houses of Parliament on, I don't know the exact date, but it was early March um, 2021. And, um, and, but, the law hasn't been endorsed yet by Parliament. So in South Australia, we're still uh, working under criminalising legislation, um, which, you know, does... There is a criminal penalty attached to both doctors and people who have abortions. Um, no one's going to be charged, you know, and um, it, but still the law, the old law remains. Um, and so the, the, that's moving really slowly because the regulations that come alongside... Um, new law haven't been endorsed by Parliament, and so they're really dragging their feet on that. Um, in WA... WA's probably got the most um, conservative law um, in Australia now. And uh, this is potentially because they decriminalised first, and that was in 1998. Mm -hmm. um, and so in WA, um, doctors are still... 
subject to criminal penalties if they don't follow health regulations relating to abortion. And the biggest one in WA is um, related to abortions after 20 weeks, which are very restricted in WA. Um, then we have clauses in state laws such as New South Wales, W and South Australia that, may, that make doctors um, tell pregnant people that counselling services mm -hmm. are available to them if they so need it. And you might think this is kind of you know, good law that it's looking after people who want an abortion. Um, but if you contrast that with pregnancy, if you go to a doctor and say, you know, I'm pregnant and I want to continue with this pregnancy and, you know, become a parent, they're not going to send you to counselling. And so there's a value yeah. judgment in that law. Um, so there's some of the restrictions in law. But when we're talking about abortion... Um, has its practice today, the biggest hurdles are really outside of the law. And so, for example, in most of Australia, abortions are performed in private clinics. Then there's no public provision of abortion. Mm -hmm. And an abortion will cost about four to $600 out of pocket. So that's quite expensive for some women. And we also know that people who have abortions are often not always those who are already sort of economically marginalised. So it's particularly um, difficult for people who are having abortions, who are sometimes having abortions because they can't afford to have a child, for example. Yeah, definitely. And I think you made such an interesting point about, you know, when a woman is pregnant, uh, you're kind of not offered um, psychological psychology or therapy in any way and by doing that with abortion it kind of denormalizes it even with there's that this, yeah that's right there's this default that um continuing of the pregnancy birth and parenthood is a normal pregnancy and that really infuses everything about abortion um it's regulation in law but also in other health policy it's regulation through medicare and you know what type of um, pregnancy expenses are covered by Medicare. And so, for example, you can have a child, as you should be able to do, fully through the public health system. And, you know, having a child through the public health system is a lot more expensive than having a termination. Um, but also the way we speak about abortion, there's this default norm of birth um, and parenthood. And so, for example, even miscarriage is um, there's kind of stigmatised as well. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, and just on that note, uh, if you could, I guess, divulge on what systems can Australia specifically implement to improve safer access to abortions? Um, well, the biggest change would probably be to integrate it into public health. And so you might remember in the lead up to the last election, which was, I think, 2018. <laughs> I can't remember. Um, yeah. <laughs> but there was a Labor health policy which said that they would tie the funding of public hospitals to the provision of abortions. And basically they say, we're not going to give you your money unless you start providing abortions. And the radical thing about that is that would compel public hospitals to, sorry, to provide abortions. And these would be in um, rural hospitals as well, which is particularly important because when it comes to surgical abortions, there's very few facilities in rural and regional Australia. Another thing that needs to happen is there needs to be a shift away from surgical abortions to medical abortions. 
Um, and so you, you might know that it's now possible, it's been possible in Australia for a long time, to get an abortion by taking um, two pills mm-hmm. um, a day apart. And if you go for medical abortion, you can actually have a medical abortion at home and it sort of induces a miscarriage. And this is only available for people who are pregnant up to nine weeks. So it's called early medical abortion. Um, and it actually, the World Health Organization, other, other institutions say that you can use it safely to 12 weeks. Um, and so that would be another shift to be able to use it later. But currently we're going to use it to, in Australia until nine weeks. Um, anyway, so in order for this to happen, uh, there needs to be a few shifts. Um, one of them is there needs to be a Medicare item provided um, for medical abortion. So currently, if you go to a GP um, and ask for medical abortion, um, a few things will happen. Firstly, your GP most likely won't provide medical abortion. Um, and this is because only 10% of GPs in Australia, 1% in rural and regional Australia, um, are registered to prescribe medical abortion. Um, and this is because of the TGA, which compels uh, doctors to register to prescribe medical abortion. And this is the only medication that doctors need to specially sign up to prescribe. And doctors just haven't done the course that um, enables them to become abortion providers. So the TGA needs to scrap that regulation. It's unnecessary and it's discriminatory. Um, but then when you get to the doctor... Um, doctors need GPs work or they survive um, by billing patients and they bill patients according to Medicare items. All doctors do, in fact. Um, but with GPs, you've got several items. You have a standard consult, you've got a long consult, and then you've got several medical items for kind of special um, procedures or consults. And so one of these would be a mental health plan. Mm-hmm. Sorry, mental health care plan. So if you've been to a GP and had a mental health care plan, you'll know, well, that you spend a lot of time with a doctor and the doctor can bill Medicare for that time. And there's no equivalent for medical abortion, which would take about the same amount of time. And all doctors could do is um, bill for the long consult and that doesn't really remunerate them for the time spent. And the problem with that then, that doctors aren't incentivised to become abortion providers. Um, so there's two simple shifts that can happen and actually need to happen, and they will happen in the future, I'm sure, um, to make medical abortion more accessible. And another thing is really important about medical abortion is that um, nurses and midwives and um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander health workers should be able to prescribe abortions. This is recommended by WHO and other institutional um, organisations. Um, but now they're prohibited from doing so, both because of state ter- territory laws, which limit the, their provision, um, but also from TGA regulations, which say that only doctors can prescribe medical abortions. Yeah, yeah, plenty of stuff, plenty of stuff to yeah, improve on. Um, <laughs> um, and I mean, even I think keeping in mind that comparing constantly to the US, which is going to be in the news a lot Um, it's important to kind of refocus our attention on exactly what systems would improve uh, abortions or safer access to abortions here in Australia so um, we could have much equitable um, much more equitable provision in Australia and the fact that we don't 
discriminate against um, marginal and vulnerable women in particular, just as the um, overturning of Roe versus Wade will in um, the States. Definitely. Um, And I'm so sorry, we are like running out of time, um, which means we'll have to get you on again, because even just uh, reading about your book, Happy Abortions, Our Bodies in the Era of Choice, um, I could, yeah, there's just a lot of good points I wanted to speak to you about in it, especially, I know, especially, yeah, especially the discourse, you know, on abortions right now and how, you know, if it's negatively shaping or detaching women from how they feel about abortions. But anyway, we'll just have to get you on to speak about it again. So sorry, we've run out of time. Um, But thank you so much, uh, Erica, for joining us on the show, talking us through some of uh, the domestic issues, uh, policies and legalities with abortions. Um, It was great to have you on. Thanks for having me, Genesis. Have a lovely day. Yeah, you too. Um, That was Dr. Erica Miller speaking about Australia's abortion laws and what can be done to improve them in light of the positioning of the U.S. Supreme Court to overturn Roe v. Wade. For further information, be sure to have a read of Erica's recent article in the conversation titled Abortion is No Longer a Crime in Australia, so why is it still so hard to access? And also check out her book, Happy Abortions, Our Bodies in the Era of Choice. We'll be right back after this. Join Free Palestine Melbourne in remembering the Nakba at a vigil at the State Library at 12 midday on Sunday the 15th of May. Nakba means catastrophe in Arabic and commemorates the displacement and ethnic cleansing of more than 700,000 Palestinians from their homes to create the State of Israel in 1948. The Nakba continues with refugees from 1948 still living in refugee camps and more Palestinians being displaced as Israeli settlements continue to be built on stolen Palestinian land. The event will include naming and acknowledging many of the towns and villages destroyed by Israel. Nakba Day Ritual, midday, Sunday, the 15th of May, on the steps of the State Library of Victoria. Free Palestine Melbourne is a 3CR supporter. Earlier, we listened to part one of Evie's chat with Dr. Susie Allenson and Lizzie O'Shea about their book, Empowering Women, which is an oral history about some of the most significant moments in Australian history in the battle to protect abortion rights. Significantly, abortion was only last decriminalised in South Australia in 2021, even as we mentioned in our uh conversation that has just been, emphasising how critical and recent this fight has been, and we are now going to listen to part two. Uh, Susie, this book I I also found really important. I alluded to it earlier, Um, not only as a history of the fight that you both shared, uh, but as a document that educates younger generations about how hard fought these freedoms are and how tenuous the link might be to make sure that they continue to be available to us. Um, Something I realised is that I certainly wasn't taught about any of this at school. Um, I, you know, I went to a pretty okay school, I thought, but when I, when I think about what I learned about abortion access generally, um, I think there's a tendency to assume Australia is or never was that bad compared to US-centric discussions. I'd only ever heard about Dr. George Tiller, for example. Um, I, I'm kind of embarrassed to say that before 2015, I didn't actually know that anyone had been killed outside abortion clinics. Um, so, is this something that you feel is really important that we educate further generations about this history? 
Absolutely. I'm just delighted to hear you say that you, you found that it, it raised your consciousness. I yes. think that term consciousness raising needs to come back into vogue. Um, I'd really like to see all of our politicians and, in fact, oh, every every person do gender studies 101. <laughs> um, because, look, even though I've been so involved in in this whole process, there are still occasions where I say something and I think, oh, my God, I think that was feminist. I think that was sexist. Or, or, oh, I think that was just being racist. And we've all been washed in this same tub of misogyny. Um, you know, if you want to further your education, have, have a look at the book Invisible Women by Carolyn Criado Perez as well. Um, that's just frightening, the way women are excluded in every facet of our life, that the world has been... It's, it's a world made by men for men. And so that's where I think having women in positions like yours, um, having women in Parliament, having three women sitting on the High Court, one who was the High Court Justice, it is just so crucial because then women's perspective is heard, um, women's voices are heard. And so I think, I think that's been a generational, very positive generational change, that there are more women in positions of power. But as we've seen in federal politics, you know, many of the Liberal women have not spoken up, or if they have, it's to take the party line, which is at the moment an incredibly sexist um, line. Yeah, that, that's something else I was going to say. Like, I, I'm sure this will be mentioned quite a few times in discussions about your book, but it does seem like an extremely timely book um, in the in terms of the conversations we're currently having about women in positions of power, women in federal parliament, um, the truth-telling that has to be done now to be honest about not only our history but what women have gone through in order to be able to get through to the next stage, which is um, remedying the harm that's being done and also making sure it doesn't happen to other women. Yes, I just hope it doesn't take as long because I think <laughs> and I hope that our book inspires women to keep at it because the cost um, to someone like Brittany Higgins, the cost to speaking out for women is huge and does it's still taking far too long for people to just do the decent thing um lizzie one more um question i had was that um in in terms of your own career i i know this case even as we were discussing before, even the initial case being a loss, it was still so instructive for your career. Um, and being a lawyer, sometimes it does, um, there is an onus or like a responsibility sometimes that you feel that as someone with that power to help people, that you feel like you need to do that as much as you possibly can in whatever means that you can um, to use that for change that means for the better good of everyone else. Yeah, uh, well, this is one example where it's been a really rewarding experience. I think um, a lot of people think lawyers' lives are um, very busy, maybe quite boring, very dry and dull, and this is the, this experience for me was the opposite. I do think social movements generally have a lot to learn from this example about how to use litigation. Sometimes I think in um, struggles for social change where we think that courts will solve our problems and, mm. and I think that can sometimes be uh, an incorrect assumption and we have to think really carefully about it. But I also don't think the courts 
um, are without, you know, important opportunities for advocates trying to make change. And this is a good example of it. I found it just really instructive, even just talking to Susie about this, what she as a client expected from her lawyer and what she received in legal advice over the years and how it changed when um, women, particularly who were interested in listening to the concerns of the fertility control clinic and then articulating them in law, how, how much that changed the dynamic of what she was experiencing as a client of a legal, of a, in a legal case and a participant in the legal system. So that's one of the reasons why I feel really passionately about this story and why I think this is like an instructive resource guide for people who, who are interested in, in litigation as a source of social change. It really gives you an idea of how to do this well, I think, um, and there'll be successes and failures along the way, but the relationship between lawyers and clients is one that ought to be uh, based on respect. It shouldn't be dictatorial where lawyers are treated as the expert and know best about everything, but you can learn a lot from your clients as well. So that's the idea of this book, I think, as well, to be a documentation of a really important bit of history where women coming together organised to change the world in, a, in an amazing way, but also for lawyers who are interested in this topic to have a guide to what you know, successful public interest litigation over the course of kind of 10 years really um, can achieve and, and what, what secrets are to that kind of success. I think if I could just add something there, Evie, it was incredibly hard for me to um, find the right people. And when I contacted, when I eventually contacted the Human Rights Law Centre, Emily Howie there was just um, right onto it. She totally got where I was coming from. And then the Human Rights Law Centre uh, approached Maurice Blackburn and Maurice Blackburn lawyers very generously um, conducted this uh, case pro bono. And so even the fact that they were doing this pro bono, that they really had their heart in it, um, was just such a boost to me. And I felt so much more confident that we were heading in the right direction. Everything was so organised. And all of the evidence that we gathered was accepted by the court unchallenged. All of that evidence we then could channel to politicians at the appropriate time. Of course, we didn't know that's what we were going to be doing. We were wanting to win. Um, but it was, just, uh, it, it was just wonderful to have those power brokers of human rights and protest rights, I might say, in our mm. corner. Yeah, just, just the... I, I think it's such a positive force, Um that I think can encourage women. Uh, I think sometimes it, it it is hard not to be a bit despondent um, when you know you're reminded of how broad um, the kind of uh, oppressions and the kind of thing you know the the things that happen against women. Um, and it's hard not to feel helpless sometimes. But it is nice to have that reminder that yes, there is a way out, and it it is a collective effort. Um, to come out of that and to make the connections that you did in this case um, and, uh, you know, the entire fight that happened and that, you know, you have relationships and connections now for future fights as well. Yes, well, um, many many of the uh, political connections and with the women's groups, um, they actually harked back to the abortion decrim in 2008. So we were able to build on those, although Fiona Patton was someone shiny and new who'd come into Parliament and that also was such a positive. She was an independent she, and she was able to run with this. Um, she had the energy. Oh, <laughs> yes. 
absolutely. And oh, she's a very special person, um, and and was pretty much adored on both sides of the house. <laughs> Yeah, I think the other thing to say is that uh, that's an important point that the connections that you've built up serve a purpose later on. Like one thing I think that Susie and I would both agree on is that in many ways we've got safe access zones. You know, abortion's been largely decriminalised across the entire country except Western Australia and safe access zones are in place in lots of parts of the country, which is an incredible achievement. But there are still problems with access and um, how people who are living outside of metro areas can get in and, and access abortion. And, you know, there's someone like Amanda Stoker who's in federal politics who professes to be anti-choice. So these struggles, that kind of neural network that you build up of people who are connected to this issue because you've spoken to them, you've worked with them, you've, you know, gone through a difficult process of legislative reform, you know, you've, you've taken the lead, as Susie did, in, in um, challenging or defending these laws in the High Court. Um, that serves a purpose later on as well as we start to prosecute arguments around access and we make sure we defend the rights that we've gained. So it really is an important job to try and diversify this movement, bring in lots of different people so that the rights are better protected in future and can be built upon for subsequent generations as well. And that was Dr. Susie Allenson and Lizzie O'Shea. And we'll put a link on the show notes uh, to their book, Empowering Women, and also to the launch of the book happening at the Wheeler Centre later this month. Um, That brings us to the end of the show. Uh, Please keep it locked to 3CR. We have Accent of Women coming up next. And also, if you missed any of the interviews or conversations we had earlier on the show, you can access our podcast uh, on the 3CR website at Tuesday Breakfast. Enjoy the rest of your Tuesday. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.